and welcome back to the Murdy Creative Co. Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Murdy. So it's been a long time since I podcasted previously. I am acutely aware of that. Uh, I apologize for the long time delay. To be honest, I've actually really missed podcasting. There's been so much that's been going on with this last two months. It's been absurd. And with the changes and the, the, the things that have come up, it's been, well, it's been an interesting little, you know, slice of humble pie for me I've had to take. And um, there's a lot of lessons I've learned. So I hope that I will be getting back to, actually, I probably will be getting back to the short form podcasts for a little while. Um, surprisingly, the long form podcasts have been significantly higher uh, or more listened to, I should say, than the short form podcast. So I think there is something to the the media itself, uh, and we'll go back to doing that. But I, I do want to get back to the short form because I think that it's better content for a more regular audience. Uh, and also, it's to be honest, these long form podcasts, they're like exhausting to do. They're a huge deal, uh, mostly because it's hard to find an hour or two during the day that I'm not, you know, working. And to just do them is is a lot. And it's kind of fun because I like to kind of tell the story and ramble. And, you know, there's there's not limitations to this. It's not like I have a time frame that I have to be within. So, you know, that that's part of it. But I will say that the last month has been, or the last two months, I should say, have been very interesting. Um, for those of you who haven't heard, and if you haven't heard, you should get on our email list. You should go subscribe to our Instagram. You should be on our Facebook. You should be on our Snapchat because I've been talking about them nonstop. But if you haven't heard... We did launch some new sizes of the number two, um, and there's actually a good story that goes along with that launch, and it's actually several stories, but uh, that's, so if you haven't seen them, we got a larger size that's about the size of a composition notebook that's designed for the largest of the moleskin. We have a, a smaller one that's designed for the smallest of the moleskins, uh, makes a great little back pocket kind of book, and we have uh, the uh, one that we have for the metric cut, which is for A5, um, and that's actually kind of a, there's a a story that goes along with the A5 and the bigger picture as well. But that has been something we have been dealing with and struggling with. And, <laughs> oh, launches are never simple. They're never easy. And they're almost always just, they always have something go wrong at the last minute. And it's just every time, every single time, I think I'm going to do better. And this time it was better, but we still didn't fix all the problems. So who knows? Maybe one of these days I'll figure it out. But anyway, <clears throat> let's get into this last episode of the three-part series um, of these long-form podcasts, and I'm going to tell the story. This time is kind of after college and what happens next. Uh, I'm going to probably kind of recap a little bit and follow up and kind of finish up where I was at with um, the last my last semester of college rolling into the beginning of uh, the beginning of the company, sort of, and then rolling into my work out in the real world in corporate America for a little while, and then before I went back and uh, worked for the company. So uh, I think it's important to note for this story that my senior year of college, I was doing 25 credits, uh, finishing most of my master's courses. I was working as the graduate assistant for the School of Business for 20 hours a week, I was working uh, nights and weekends at the local North Shore Country Club, uh, which I really enjoyed, to be honest. It was actually a really good time um, working at the North Shore Country Club as waitstaff. I was planning a wedding. I was the lead. I was Willy Wonka in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory for the school's performance of that. And uh, I was I had Murdy Global going. So 
as one could imagine, that's like a that's like a hundred and sixty eight hours right there of work. Um, so that's uh, you know for a week. So that's a lot, and it was too much. And I ended up saying, okay, look, Murdy Global is taking up a lot of time, and I'm not really making a lot of progress with it. And it is um, not necessarily something I feel deeply passionate about. I mean, I like it. I think it's important. I have a lot of interest in it, but it's something that I think I can put away for now and kind of focus on the current things in front of me and I'll go back to it later. And so I did just that. I sunset the Murdy Creative Company or Murdy Global. Um, and it I never like officially, like I still paid the LLC fees and everything, which is why the Murdy Creative Company is technically uh, Murdy Global LLC doing business as the Murdy Creative Company. And eventually I'll probably get around to changing that structure. Um, but that was, that's why that existed. So technically the Murdy Global Company um, existed since and the Murdy Creative Company, from a, in a legal sense, as a legal entity, has existed since 2015, but we've really only been business since 2018. So, I had got obviously given Dr. Sem um, and Dr. Ferry uh, the the Murdy Number One that was the engraved, the kind of the prototypes, the first versions, just as a gift. You know, the purchase happened for the 30 of them. I immediately turned that money around and bought a laser engraver and more supplies and got the company rolling. And at the time, I didn't really need the money to live off of for the company. So basically all of the company money went back into the company. So here I am. It's probably July or August. I actually, one of the things that's important, I got married. Um, I'd been working at the country club. I got married to my wonderful wife, Leah, who has been a, um, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful partner in all of this. And it's truly the best decision I've ever made. Um, and I was, I, I, I'm so grateful for her because she's been such a trooper through all of this, but, uh, she was always very supportive of my entrepreneurial dreams and, and she kind of was, you know, just a real sweetheart in all of this. And it was a wonderful love story and sometime I'll get into that. Um, but Leah ended up, uh, we, we ended up getting married July 1st and we went on our honeymoon for a week in Cancun. Uh, and that was, that was wonderful. That was a beautiful time. And I love Cancun and, um, I would strongly recommend anybody who's looking and planning a honeymoon to to plan a honeymoon at an all expense paid vacation resort somewhere where you don't necessarily want to leave the resort because the resort is so beautiful and everything because to be honest the week before your wedding you're going to have to make 10,000 decisions and you don't think you're gonna because you've been making 10,000 decisions up until that point but you got to make another 10,000 decisions and they're all going to be high pressure and they're all going to be high stakes and everything's going to go wrong so when you go on your honeymoon it's best to not go on a honeymoon that you have to make a lot more decisions because it's just going to be exhausting and you're going to hate it. So I would recommend, not that it matters, that you go find a vacation where you can just lie on a beach or or sit in a resort and, and not have to do anything, any planning, any meal prep, anything, just be there. So we went on, my, we went on our honeymoon and obviously we'd been working at the country club for, I'd been working at the country club for about a year at that point. Leah had been, actually not quite a year. Leah had been working a little over a year. She moved in May the year before up to Milwaukee and started working there. Uh, so we had, you know, and it's always hard to get time off at a country club in the middle of the summer because that's the busy season. So, you know, we had to kind of wrangle and, and figure it out. But uh, we were able to get our time off. And uh, I was thinking, so when we came back from on when I was thinking, okay, I'm this, you know, I'm this, I just did finish up my graduate work, like, the week before the wedding, so that my grad, my contract with the school of business had ended. So I was kind of out of work at that point. I thought, you know what? I'll go on my honeymoon. I'll go on my, I'll go on my, I'll have my wedding, go on my honeymoon, and then I'll come back and I'll start looking for jobs. Right? I have my 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 waitering gig, which you know helps me, you know, pay the bills, and I you know enjoy it. And frankly, I have a lot of free time during my day, so it, I can kind of pursue a lot of the stuff. And little did I know at that time that it was actually a really good deal. <laughs> 
I actually, uh, I actually strongly recommend for anybody who is looking to go into entrepreneurship, who wants to start their own business, go get a job at your local country club as evening wait staff um, and, after, and, and, and uh, weekend wait staff for a couple of reasons. One, it means that you can spend your day working on your side gig on your, your company and you don't need to take money out of it. So the company doesn't necessarily need to be very profitable in the beginning, which it won't be because, you know, to be honest, there's a lot of expenses to get started with and not necessarily a lot of revenue. It also means you can pour more of the revenue back into advertising, which will be what's going to grow your company. So going to and making money at a country club is a great way to do it. Also, the one thing I didn't anticipate, although I should have, is you meet a ton of people at a country club that you would never, ever get a chance to have FaceTime with if you were just some Joe Schmo working on the street trying to start your company. It's funny because I, I think to this day about some of the people that came to Leah and I's wedding. They were friends of us from the country club. We, we were waitstaff, but to be honest, at a, at a country club, and I think this is very true of a lot of country clubs, if you're waitstaff and you're polite and you're cordial and you're friendly and you get to know the people that you are, you know, you're taking care of and you go into it with an attitude of, hey, I'm here to serve you. I want to make your experience the most fun and wonderful it can be. And I want to I want to get to know you so that I can anticipate your drink needs and I, I know what you like to eat so I can recommend stuff. And, you know, you develop real friendships, real rapport with people in these places. And it's really quite, quite fun. And, you know, there's been there were plenty of times where um I'm actually just going to give her a shout out. Mrs. Fry became one of uh, one of Lee and I's favorite people. She was always very welcoming, uh, very encouraging to all of us. You know, she 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 was one of those people who we would be serving and and we were you know we would get to know them. And after after they'd come probably three or four times, uh, you know, there was an opportunity where she was like, "Hey, tell me more about you know what you're doing for school or what you're doing for you know ever." And so we got talking and you know we developed real real friendship with them. Um, and it's funny because you know Doug Fryer, her husband is was was a wonderful contact and a wonderful resource, and and she herself was a wonderful contact and a wonderful resource. So, uh, you know, they came to our wedding, right? We had a couple of people like that that were just amazing community members who you know ran big things and had big organizations that came to Lee and I's wedding because we both worked at the country club and we knew them and we'd taken care of them. And so I think that's something that I would recommend to any entrepreneurs. Like, well, how do I get started? Well, first off, just start. Make a website. But if you're saying, okay, well, I don't have any money, simple, go get a job. Go get a job that you can work the, in the evenings. Hey, be a night guard for all, for all I know. I mean, it's like, be, do something that you can, you can have your days to, to, build, to build your small business and then just work like a dog because that's what it takes. So I, um, we got back from our honeymoon and we went back to work and I, I started filling out resumes and I applied to a whole bunch of places and I was, I had my, I had three master's degrees and a bachelor's degrees. I thought to myself, you know, like, I was involved in, in, in theater, I was involved in a lot of the clubs, I was involved in a lot of the various school activities. I thought I was going to have no problem finding a job, and I thought I was going to have no problem finding a job at a big place, right, a big corporate office, and I didn't really, I mean, I, I will say at that time, I actually was really looking forward to being in corporate life. I had, I kind of had always dreamed of running my own business, um, but I always dreamed of running my own business and it being a really big business, so... <laughs> which, you know, I think everybody does, but I, I, I didn't want to run a small business. I wanted to run a big business. And so I, I thought to myself, well, I'll, I'll go join the corporate world and I'll climb the ladder and I'll get to the top of that and I can run that show. And so I'd started looking at a lot of different corporate jobs. And it, it, had been, it took like, well, not six months, um, took at least four or five months of me solidly applying week after week to jobs, 
you know, going and, and, and doing interviews and I just didn't get anything. And I was like shocked. I was like, you know, that was that was a good little moment for me to to have my my ego resized and get a little new, get a new hat size. Because, you know, when you come out of college, you think, well, I just know what I'm talking about. I've been doing all of this school for all of these years. So obviously I know what I'm doing. And there's nothing like sitting in an interview where they're asking you know, what your credible experience is out in the workforce. And you have to say, I, I'm waitstaff, um, to really r- remind you of that. So I finally was at, uh, one night I was working at the country club and, uh, I was taking care of, uh, uh, a couple of the members, um, who were nice gentlemen. I, the gentlemen were always great to, to work with. And so were the ladies. It was, it was, but it was different. And, and, and there, there were different needs for different members. Of course, some, some members were more high maintenance and you kind of knew who those were. And some of them were more, were big tippers. And, um, to be honest, there was a couple of guys that came for golf night that were just, they were the most casual, relaxed people. They were the best customers. They tipped well. They were like, yeah, no, no. Whenever you get a chance, those are the kinds of people that like you go and above and beyond for because you know, you don't have to. Um, and, uh, and so I was, I was, yeah, I get him some drinks and, I overheard that they were talking about hiring millennials and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, this is a professional environment, so don't say anything. But at the same time, you really need a job. And, you know, perhaps this is the Lord speaking to you. you know, maybe this is God putting an opportunity in front of you and you don't want to waste those things. So uh, I kind of debated about it, but it was it was time to present their checks. I presented their checks and then I just said, hey, I didn't mean to eavesdrop and I don't obviously mean to intrude, but I want you to know that I am a millennial and I'm looking for a job. So if you know anybody who's hiring, please let me know because obviously I knew they were talking about this. And uh, um, uh, Mr. Olson, bless his heart, I think it was, he uh, he said, well, well, because I turned to walk away, right? Because that's the right thing to do in that circumstance. You don't want to intrude, right? You don't want to force yourself on them. So I said my bit and I was going to leave, right? Uh, Mr. Olson, bless his heart, said, hey, well, stay a second, stay a second. Tell, tell us, uh, you know, did, did you, are you studying? Are you getting school? Did you graduate and everything? And I explained my, what I had and he goes, Wow. Well, uh, and at the time I was also teaching, I forgot about that. I was actually teaching e-commerce uh, at Concordia because um, I'd, I'd done a little bit, I'd kind of started my own little side business and I'd done some e-commerce. So they wanted me to teach. And so I did I, that. And so I told him I was teaching e-commerce and I'd gotten my degrees and all these different things and was working and he said, well, um, you know, Mr. Anderson's here is, is, uh, is looking, looking for people. You know, he's in e-commerce. And Mr. Anderson, bless his heart, was there. And he goes, you know, actually, can you, do you have a business card? And of course I did, because, you know, you always have those on hand when you need them. So I, I, I pulled out my business card. I said, you know, here it is. Uh, please feel free to reach out if you have anything at all. And he says, well, I think we might have something. Um, here's my business card. Give me a call tomorrow at during office hours, and uh, I'll see what we can do. Of course, during 9 o'clock the next morning, because I didn't want to call him too early, I, uh, I called him. I said, hey, I just wanted to follow up on that. And he said, you know what, I'm going to patch you in with our head of HR Mike Brooks, he's a great guy, um, and we'll see if we can find you something. And and you send him, send him over your resume, and we'll see what we can do. And so I sent him over my resume, and they, and and they found something for me. I mean, they they said, well, here's the thing: we we've got a program that could be starting up um, in the future. That's kind of more of a an entrepreneurial type role, uh, but it's not ready yet. Like it's not a position that exists yet. It's something that could be coming out in a couple of months. In the meantime, we have a part time position as a global sourcing administrator in our global sourcing department. Do you have any interest in that? I mean, I have my international business background, so I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. All right, I'd, I'd been to Austria, so I knew a little bit about kind of the cross-cultural things that you, you get when you go abroad, and I didn't know actually anything about what I was going to be doing. And so I said, sure. So they had me come in, and I met with Mike. And I have to say that that first meeting with Mike was so pivotal. I, I don't even, I didn't, looking back on it, I didn't realize how pivotal that meeting would be. Um, 
but we got talking and out of all of the HR reps I've ever met, Mike Brooks has got to be one of my favorite because he was, was so casual. He's, um, I'm, he's not going to like this, but to give you a little bit of a, of a kind of a picture in your head, he's, uh, he's very jovial. He's very Santa Claus esque, uh, when he has a beard, which he doesn't always have, but he's, uh, kind of probably in his mid fifties. Um, and he's just the most casual, relaxed guy. He's fun. He's funny. He's creative. And he's got, uh, yeah, Santa Claus is kind of, I think the picture I would have in mind. Uh, he's got a good smile on his face and he's, he's always willing to talk. Which is exactly what you're looking for in an HR person, by the way. That's that's like the goal. So I was I was happy. I sat down with him. And he's like, you know, I, I got to say, Colin, I'm looking at your resume here. How have you not found a job yet? And I said, that's what I've been saying. I, it's like, I, I literally, I think I exploded. I just like, I agree. I don't understand what's going on either. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we started talking and, and you know, he he kind of helped. He asked, he's like, well, what what have you been getting? And, uh, you know, I said, well, a lot of the kind of response is, well, we don't know if you'd be a good fit with our culture, which, by the way, is just purely insulting. And, uh, you know, he said, well, that's just a cop out answer that a lot of HR people give. I don't really know what the real issue is here. But um, I, I and we had a conversation for like an hour and a half that day. It was awesome. And I um, so I, I said, I said, well, I'd, I'd love to to do anything. I, and, and, you know, after talking, I think for a while, I, I don't know if I I if I give this off or if it was something that I just kind of had said, but I, I think he got the idea that I can get passionate about it just about anything. I can get passionate and be interested and engaged in just about any, anything. I like business as a, as a subject. I like the topic in general. And so, you know, pretty much any aspect of that I'm interested in. And so he, uh, he said, well, we've got a, we've got a, a role here. That's a part-time position in the global sourcing department. You'd be working under, under Des and you would, um, you'd be helping her with, sourcing of our of our stuff from overseas and I said okay well I'm interested in that and um and so I ended up having a a a meeting another interview scheduled with my who would be my direct superior Des and Des and I um Des was I actually have absolutely no idea how old Des is she she has this timeless face she was probably older than 30. I can guarantee she was older than 30, but I any anything past that I couldn't tell you. Like she had this timeless face, uh short uh cropped hair, um very uh very kind of tallish, thinnish, very uh classic um kind of ethereal elfin kind of air about her and she was um she was wonderful in the meeting to talk to. She was a great she had a lot of great, and we ended up in our meeting with her. It was like a three hour discussion and it was, it started out as an interview, but we just got talking and it was, it really was a fun time. And I think we had very similar kind of personalities. Um, and, and so it, we, we got along and I think she enjoyed and understood that I have this boundless energy to do things. And so there was, so I got, we got started and um, I'm going to, I, there will be some parts of the story that I cannot go into detail about and I don't want to go into detail about just because of the sensitive nature of how things progress in life and the fact that I'm not working there anymore. I will uh, tell you a lot of it, but I can't tell you all of it. And and so please don't make any judgments based off of what I tell you just because there's more to the story that I can't. So, um, 
we, I started in October part-time and by January full, first, or I think it was first, I'd gone full-time at the company and I, I loved my time. I quit the country club altogether and I was just working, um, at the, at the at, at national business furniture and they're a wonderful company, pretty large. Um, they're, I, I will say that they are, um, well, I'm not going to say that actually, I'm not going to tell you exactly how large they are even remotely. They're, they're very large. They have quite a few employees. Um, I will say it's less than 500 employees at the moment, so I can I can give you that, but I think that's public. Um, but they're a big company, and they sell a lot of furniture, and they're a pro- predominantly business-to-business furniture, and they've been around for uh, 40-something years, 40, 50 years, something like that. Um, and they started out from the, the founder of the company, George Mosier, uh, started the company uh, based off of mailing catalogs to specific companies in specific zip codes and his genius, like what he was really good at from what, this was all secondhand. I never met the man, um, but I heard this a lot from a lot of the different people who were in the management who had worked with him for many years. His detail orientation was towards data. He could tell you the demographic data of any of the zip codes that they shipped to. And if you think about that, when the company got started in like the 60s and 70s, that's that was like well before data analytics of the modern world had even become a thing, right? They didn't even have the computers to make it happen. So for someone to be able to just know the demographic data off the top of their head of all of the places they mailed stuff to, that's a that's a very powerful tool. And so he had built this company um, around mailing catalogs, which they do mail a lot of catalogs and they do a lot of their stuff via catalogs. They also have a pretty uh, robust web presence. Um, and, and you can go find them at mbf.com and you know, they've got good furniture, but I was in the, um, I was in the, the global sourcing department. So a portion of their product, actually, let me, a majority of their product comes from domestic manufacturers, people who make furniture in this country. There is a lot of stuff going on in that regard. And there's a lot of manufacturers, a lot of big A grade manufacturers in the areas that, that are common for that. And they buy a lot of furniture from them and you can go on their website and you can see a lot of times who makes the furniture and such like that. But um, they also have uh, a portion of their, their furniture come from overseas. And a lot of that was designed um, by us internally. We design the product. We design them the, the way that they're going to look, their feel. Once we have the designs laid out and uh, we've got the, the manufacturers who we work with over there, they spec it out. They had um, you know price quoting sheets that they sent us that we got back. And we had kind of back and forth on packaging and how it was done and all that other good stuff. All the stuff you would expect from a business like that. And my job was basically to help Des do all of the paperwork for it because there is, so she would do a lot of the, the lead design work and she was always very encouraging to like involve me in that. She would let me, you know, she would ask me questions sometimes or, you know, she, she had a very specific look in mind. So it wasn't like I designed any of it, but she had a time where she would allow me to say, Hey, so we've got these two grays here, right? Excuse me. And we have a lot of different, these, these two grays that we can choose for these high pressure laminates. Uh, and we have a wood version, you know, you know, why did we choose this one over this one? And she would go into detail, say, okay, well, you know, we use high pressure laminate rather than melamine because we want these to have a more durable work surface and be a little bit higher quality. And, uh, we don't use wood at the moment for this one because the problem with real wood is it, it can warp, it can bend, the humidity causes it to change shape over time. So the, the high pressure um, laminate is the better option for that. So that's why we're using that. So, so I actually learned a lot about, about furniture, about the, the industry, about how it works, why it works. Um, and, and kind of a lot of that. And at the same time, I was 
pretty heavily involved in the um, the import export world of the regulatory environments behind that. And and there is, God, you want to talk about government regulation that just seems unbelievably burdensome for almost no reason. That import export world is definitely one of them. It is it is a a. A nightmare. And to give you a little bit of, of backstory into it, I, um, the, the, well, hey, why don't we go detailed? So I had the opportunity, the company paid for it for me to go to a class with an expert on import export. And I got the textbook and still have the textbooks actually. Um, and these, these two days, day long seminars were, um, very intense, deep analysis into the import export world. And the textbooks themselves were, I think, like 400 or 500 pages long. And we went through all of them in those 12 hours. So we're flying through the textbook. And a good portion of the textbook is the HTS, the Harmonized Tariff System. So a very long time ago, um, the HTS was specifically codified. I think it was in the 60s, I want to say. But it was a while back. Uh, Back when global trade was really starting to kick off, there was something called the Harmonized Tariff System that was developed by uh, pretty much all of the major countries. It started out with obviously a smaller group and then it got more and more adopted it. And every five years they reevaluate the HTS code. But the way it works essentially is that the harmonized tariff system is a, uh, it's a way of coding products for tracking purposes. So when um, the president says that there is a trade deficit of this many dollars and it's this good, these goods are being, or where the, the trade deficit's happening. The way they know that, the way the government knows that is because companies that import and export have to tell the government when they bring the goods through Custom and Border Patrol, Custom and Border, border Protection, um, they have to tell the government what they're bringing in and the way they do that is by uh, coding it with these codes and these codes have specific um, unit measurements like kilogram, pound, or whatever associated with it, as well as value in a dollar amount. So the problem, though, is how do you make a code system that is entirely and completely encompassing? Because it, everything can be coded. And the way it works is this. You would say it starts in the in the low numbers. It starts essentially with raw materials, and then it goes to finished goods at the end. So in the first early ones, it's like things like grains, you know, wood, things like that are in the low numbers. Leather is in the lower numbers. And then by the time you get into like the the 900s, now we're talking about, or the 9,000s, we're talking about like the um, furniture was 9406 or something like that. So it's like you go from simple goods to complex goods. And you you have things called form and function. So you, you kind of, you try to figure out, okay, what is the good made of, right? If it's a desk, it's made of wood and metal. Okay, well, that's that's if there was no other place in the code that it could be, you would try to figure out how to classify it under wood and metal. But it's not that it's a desk. So then you go to complex things like that's function. So you go to the later codes and you say, okay, is there furniture? Yep, there's a furniture section. Is there furniture section for desks? Yes, there is. Okay, that's a different code. Is there desks of wood? Well, is a desk made of wood or is it made of metal? Because it has wood top but metal legs. Well, it's technically a desk made of wood because the metal legs are not the important part of the desk. The wood is the more important part of the desk. Well, that doesn't really make any sense because they're both important. Yeah, but if it's if they're equally important, then you have to go by value. 
value. Well, the metal desks are more valuable. Well, yes, but you have to go by function first, so the wood is the more functional part of the desk because the legs are pretty useless, but the top of the wood is pretty valuable or is pretty useful. So you would say, okay, it's that. Well, it's not just that because of its form. And so you can see how this gets complicated. So each of the products we bring in have to be manually coded because, to be honest, there's just not that many very good systems out there that can apply effective artificial intelligence to code things properly. And I'll get into that because I actually tried to build one of those while I was at the company. So the way they were doing it was they were using Excel spreadsheets, which is very common and everyone uses Excel spreadsheets, but I thought that they could do it better with an access database or some form of a database to be able to search and find these things. And, and so I was working on developing that for them. And I, that's, I, and you know, I was very happy because Des did a wonderful job saying, you know what, Colin, if you think this could be done better, show me how, tell me how, and then just do it, go, go make it happen. And I did. And I spent the first like three to five months writing um, the code for an access database that essentially allowed us to create standardized tracking systems and we could we, we were able to do a lot of the a lot of the the boring database stuff the manual data entry that I hated um, I was able to basically teach the the database to extract that information from the quote sheets and then to upload it into the proper format for the final database program that we used to track all of this stuff so I ended up writing that code most of which I didn't really know how to, so I had to teach myself how to. But by the end of it all, we had a pretty robust tool. And I, of course, wanted to continue to build the tool because I liked building the tool. So all of a sudden I started doing things like we know the box dimensions because you have to know the box dimensions, right? So we know the box dimensions. Let's see if we can figure out how to store these things efficiently. And so I wrote a program to start to calculate efficiencies of storage and figuring out, okay, this is what the warehouse is set up at. And this is the, the what they call pick locations, right? So this is and that's an industry thing, right? There's a standard size and shape of a storage bay, right? Because if you got a massive warehouse, you got to be able to find things. If you got to be able to find things, you have to create a specific unit of storage so that you can say, okay, it's in aisle four, block six, right? You have to have a standard block for that. So um, I, I said, okay, if we've got standard blocks and we had a couple of different sizes, let's figure out what the most efficient way to store these boxes are. And so I wrote the program, it was a very simple program to figure out what the most efficient way to store the boxes in the spaces were and then to figure out what the most efficient way to store, like what space should this box go in based off of its size. And that actually became very useful because we figured out early on after using that, and, and in the old days before the tool existed, we didn't know how much storage space we were going to need until the goods landed on the shore. Until they arrived at the warehouse, we had no idea. We could estimate based off the carton size, the container size, but the containers are packed to the gills, right? They're tightly, tightly packed using very advanced software. When they actually arrive at the warehouse, you don't leave it in the container. You take it out of the container. You put it, you kind of sort it into where it's going to go. But the problem is, is then you're basically decompressing it and it takes up an unknown amount of space. At least that's how it w went before this. So the tool was able to say, look, if we've got this many goods, yes, it's this many containers, but it's not going to be that many. It's not going to be an equivalent number of units because we're not storing it. There's air that's going to be in the pick locations that are going to take up space. Right. So how do we how do we utilize that? Like, how do we make the most of that? How, how do we how do we predict how much space we're going to need so that we can need space? Because at that point, we were really filling up the warehouses, right? We had pretty full. So in the end, this tool um, 
was able to tell us that we were going to need significantly more space than we thought we were going to need based off what we had ordered. And it was able to tell us that three months in advance. And because of that, we were able to reorganize things significantly and it saved the tool saved the company a lot of money. After I went full time in January, basically right away in January, I had gone into Mike's Mike's office and I said, hey, Mike, you know, I'm I when I went full time, I got this tiny little pay raise like we're talking like not much at all. And I've learned about your guys's compensation system and the way that the raises are going to happen. And to be honest, I, I, I expected to get more than this and I expected it to be more than this. And, you know, he kind of said, well you've kind of maxed out what we can do for the position, right? Like there's, we're a big company. There's, there's kind of rules about how much you can pay different people in different roles, because obviously you want it to be fair and equitable to some extent. And you've kind of maxed that out. But what, what we can do is if you're able to create a significant, you know, a significant change to the role, right? You're able to bring additional value. We can essentially create a new job description for you. And, and that could fall under a different, and then we could kind of create a different pay scale for it, right? And that that's different. Um, and I mean, I get that, right? If you're a company and you've got corporate strata, right? You can't just pay someone in a lower corporate strata a lot of extra money just because they want it, right? You have to figure out a way to move them into a different part of the company. Um, and so that was something that had kind of come up. And so he said, well, you know, can you, you do this? So that was in January and said, okay, I can do that. And so I created this tool. I, I really created this. And I basically kind of went back and said, look, I've, I've, I've done all of this. I've created this tool. I can manage this tool. I can help build a better tool, even in, in, if I have more time and I can dedicate more of my work towards this. And, um, you know, it's saved the company money. So I'm, I'm, I'm proving my worth. Right. So can you, can you, can we do a pay raise? And, and it was a little too quick, right? He's like, this is, you know, this has been, it's been three of, it's been four months, right? Since, so we can't just change it right away because we have yearly budgets and all this other stuff. And so I was a little frustrated by that. I thought to myself, well, all right. And I, I just kind of got frustrated a little bit by the pace of things because obviously in my mind, it's like, all right, just make the change, right? And in a small business, you can do that, right? You can just kind of change the rules as you go. But in a big company, and we'd been uh, we'd been owned by a different company, right? There's a bigger company that NBF is owned by. Um, so they kind of create bigger budgets that NBF then gets, and then NBF creates sub-budgets within that. So they have their annual budget meeting, and like obviously paying people falls under budgetary issues. So I, I kind of got a little frustrated pretty early on in that regard, where I felt like I wasn't able to climb as fast as I wanted to, and I felt like I was really putting in the hours and doing a lot of learning, and I was becoming valuable, and I was doing a lot of good stuff, and you know, I, and I, I guess my my feelings of frustration mostly, I think, came with the inability to to make change happen right away. Because I'm an execution person. Like, I want to execute. And I want, once that execution has happened, I want to move on to the next thing. And I want to execute again. So, <clears throat> that became a, a point that was difficult to um, to deal with. Uh, and, and at this time, so in February, after I kind of I got started, February, I started selling my books on Amazon. That's when the company really kind of got started. Before that, it literally was just on Etsy, and it was every so often we would sell one or two. It was very piecemeal. But by Amazon, by the time we got Amazon started, I'm going back a little bit, so I'm jumping timelines here. But in February, we got started on Amazon. And I remember the day. It was February 18th was when I was sitting at my desk. We'd been on Amazon for three days and hadn't sold a single thing. And I was like, well, what do I do now? 
and I got a buzz on my phone and it showed that we had made our first sale and I literally like jumped up and down in my cubicle. It was like, it was a great day. I was, I was very excited about that. So very quickly, the company started to grow on Amazon. I mean, it didn't, we didn't like take off, right? It wasn't like anything to write home about, but it was enough money on Amazon to, to, to indicate that there was a bigger market and it kind of started to help fund itself. Um, Leah at this time left the salon that she had been at because it was a toxic workplace and everyone was, ugh. anyway, so she left a toxic workplace and came to work from home and she was kind of in between jobs right about the time that Amazon was starting to take off. And I said, okay, well, how about this, honey? You, um, you can stay at home and just do the company stuff, right? Because I'm making enough money at my job, my full-time, you know, corporate job to, to have this be kind of the sole, to be the sole breadwinner as it were from a, from a financial standpoint for the family. So, you know, if you just come work at the company and you can, you can stay at home and do your work. And, uh, you know, she made books and she did some emails and, and it's ironic to think about, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I think there's a, go, go look this up. I might actually have to post this somewhere cause it's, it's too funny now. There's a day in a life vlog. So if you go search Leah, L E A H Murdy on YouTube, there is a, I think it's her first day in a life blog that she, vlog that she did on YouTube. Um, but in that a little ways in, she goes and she goes and works at the company. Like she like goes to the, the office in the house and she's working and you can see the little laser engraver we had and she's working and there's like no racking. You see there's the, the stack of leather is all of the leather the company had that you see in the video and, um, the packages, the, the box of packages that she has, that's the entirety of what the company was shipping out in one day at that time. That was like a year ago. It's crazy to think about that. Um, so that that was so the company has taken off a little bit in that regard. Leah's doing um, working for the company. I'm working at my corporate job, and I'm starting to get a little bit frustrated with the speed of how things are moving. But I'm I'm holding out there because we had gotten a new CEO at the time or new president, I should say. And um, Al was an, an excellent guy. He had a very forward thought approach towards entrepreneurship and innovation. He was very much. Um, he he changed the structure of the company in a way that was very encouraging and it helped it seem like we're kind of we're, we're breaking down some of that structural barriers that have made it difficult to be streamlined in the past right some of the some of the kind of the more rigid parts of the corporate structure and you know he had a lot of great ideas towards you know revitalizing and and, and rejuvenating and trying to hit a younger audience um and and so so while I'm kind of feeling a little bit frustrated in my day-to-day work, which to some extent felt a little bit monotonous. And, you know, the tool, once the tool had kind of been built, there wasn't really that much to be done with it, with kind of what I'd been done. So it was mostly just doing paperwork. Um, And, you know, the paperwork, I felt a little bit like Jim from The Office. It's like the paperwork didn't take that long and it was kind of boring. And so when something doesn't take that long and it's boring, you make it take the whole day. And the tool I had made it really easy and really efficient and really fast. So I basically took eight hours of work and turned it into about two hours of work. And I just felt like I wasn't being utilized. And I got involved in a couple of other projects that the company was doing. Um, I kind of offered my services to others and I was able to get some excitement out of that. And there was some some movement. Um, but I had a lot of different ideas at the time. So during, I, I want to go back to that first interview with Mike. During that first interview with Mike, he asked if I had knew, if I'd ever listened to anybody um, 
you know, any of the entrepreneurs, if I listened to Gary Vaynerchuk? And I said, I, I said, yes, but I hadn't. So I went that home that night and I watched a couple of YouTube videos by Gary Vaynerchuk and like it was, oh, I subscribed to every form of social media he offered. I got on all of his emailing lists and I love, I love Gary. Like, I, I mean, Gary's got, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be the kind of person that likes Gary to like Gary. But if you like Gary, you like Gary a lot. So, um, that was in October. So basically from October until like mm, April of, of that next year, I listened to like everything Gary had absolutely everything Gary put out. And I, um, I really loved it. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And he, I think Gary, uh, was very pivotal for me in, in coming to the, the realization that I don't have to run a small business. I can take my small business and build it into something bigger and the opportunity exists in the world and it's possible and you can make it happen. And so I, I'd, I'd been getting increasingly more frustrated with, with NBF. Um, and it's not necessarily their fault. It was mostly just a personality. And actually, um, Mike became a very important figure during this time for me as an outlet because he was, he was a creative person. He had done a lot of different roles in his life. So he had a, a broad and an interesting knowledge base. And Mike is like, he would make the perfect therapist, which is probably why he's good at HR. But, um, cause he's able to, he was able to listen consciously, but not necessarily, and make you feel better, but not necessarily, it, it, you didn't feel like, you know, your, your words were wasted, but you also understood that he was listening, but he couldn't necessarily make changes happen fast. And sometimes all you need is someone to listen to you and genuinely listen and say, Hey, I understand what you're feeling. And I think that that's a very reasonable feeling. And you know, what can we do to change it? Right. And I think he was, he was very encouraging in all of this. And I, at the time, so it was about May when I realized, you know, Gary might be right about this whole Instagram thing. I'm going to start really dedicating time and energy to Instagram and I'm going to get an Instagram and I'm cause I, I'd literally never been on Instagram before. I did not have a personal Instagram until, well, I guess I had a personal Instagram. I never used my personal Instagram. I used a company Instagram really was the first time I ever really got on Instagram. And that was, I think March or April. And I thought I could just do it with organic reach. And this was actually before the algorithm changed. So in the beginning, it actually worked a little bit um, where I would just post all the time uh, and I would just use hashtags. I kind of got I didn't really use hashtags a lot in the beginning, but I started to get better at it. And experimentation is the king of discovery, right? You, you start to figure out what works. And so I started posting and stuff. And it was about May um, when I thought to myself, we, we were planning a, uh, we were planning a family vacation with uh, my mother-in-law and my two sisters-in-law. And we were headed to Hawaii, which, man, it's like Hawaii. I just worth every penny. Absolutely recommend everyone go there. It is it is an experience unto itself. So but anyway, um, it was about this time where I said, you know what, we're going to we're going to put a lot of stuff on Amazon. We didn't really have we had a website, but we just didn't sell that much on our website. Uh, like Amazon made up like 90% of our sales, which you know, I was okay with, right? That was, that was fine. Amazon and using Amazon prime meant that it was easy. We just made boxes and we sent them to Amazon. And if we didn't get an order during the day, well, we didn't get an order. So that was the way it was. But I said, okay, look, I'm going to start, I'm going to start with some advertisements on Instagram. And this was actually, was about, 
So May, we started doing okay. I, I can I can share with you. May, I think we did $4,000 in sales. That was our biggest month at that point. And at the end of May, I said, okay, I'm going to start running some advertisements. Just a few. Like maybe, I think I spent maybe $500 that whole month, maybe. Um, and all of a sudden, those sales jumped from $4,000 to $7,000. And I'm like, there might be something to this. But I was still... A little bit hesitant, so I didn't really spend much more than that the next month. And we did seven thousand or six, uh, seven thousand or eight thousand dollars that month, and that was July. I'm getting more and more fed up, and then August comes around, and I say, you know what? I can actually remember it was August nineteenth. I was driving down I forty three. I was listening to Gary's um, talk in Manila. He did it was like a podcast that had launched that morning, and so I was listening to it. And he said in that podcast that everyone should have a podcast. Everyone should start a podcast. And that audio is going to be the future of a lot of entertainment. And so, and and then he also said that, you know, you should spend, you, you cannot overspend on Instagram at this point. And so I did something, I, I pulled over, I got off an exit and I pulled over and I took our ad spend, which at the time was about $20 a day on Instagram. And I said, I'm going to do something obscene. I'm going to spend $100 a day and to today just to see if it, if it works. We had our single best sales day ever up until that point that day. I walked into the office because that, that I just I walked into the office and I, I downloaded the Anchor um, app. And I walked into a conference room during my lunch break and I did my first 10-minute podcast, The Origins of the Murder Number One. And that started the podcast. And it was about that time that I said, you know, the company is doing well enough. It doesn't have very much. It didn't have very much overhead at the time. The company is doing well enough that I could do just the company and make about as much money as I'm making now. And it would work. And so I said, okay, I put in my two weeks at the end of about that. About that time, I actually put in my two weeks. My last day was going to be the day after Labor Day, I think. And, um, so I decided to make the leap and it was funny cause I, um, I, I made the leap in, in August, August, we did $17,000 cause the, uh, after that first day of a hundred dollars and it working, I just kept spending a hundred dollars on advertising and we just kept bringing in, we just kept having record sales days over and over and over. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess he's right. <laughs> and, um, so we brought in $17,000 in August and almost all of that happened in like from like the 19th on. Like it was, we had like maybe $6,000, $7,000 up until that point. So it was a good month. Um, but the last 10 days was what pushed it significantly further. Then I, so I went, I, so by after Labor Day, so September of 2018, it was Leah and I both working full time from home, making the company go. And that was an interesting thing. Um, but I said, let's do it. Let's spend the money. Let's make it work. And I think September we brought in $28,000 and that was the start of a growth trajectory that was exhausting and has been crazy. And so that was, that was kind of when I went full time at the company. It was just Leah and I, um, October was a, a pretty slow, um, compared. I mean, it was about the same. It was very similar. It was not crazy. But then November and December came around, and it was insane. 
We had new product launches right the first week of December, which was my biggest. That was a stupid mistake. We had all of our laser engraving debacle, as it were, as a whole thing. Um, but but beyond that, I, I think and, and for those of you who really want to learn kind of what happened, right, what happened after that point, you can go back to the beginning of the podcast and listen to the podcast. That was those were I started podcasting all through that time. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that that happened. And that's that's kind of where we got today. So I will say that um, I'm very happy. I, I'm very happy. I, I went to NBF. I learned a lot of things, um, a lot of good stuff and a lot of things that I, I want to kind of specifically avoid with the company. I, I realized and, and one of the things Mike did right before I left, they were rolling this out for the company and he had me take the test because I think he was curious and I was curious. And I it's called I think it was called the predictive index text or PI test. And um, it's very simple. You you answer a ser- you answer the uh, there's a, a question. How would others describe? How do you think others would describe you? And there's check boxes with words, and you check them right. And then um, the next question is how would you describe yourself? And then you check the boxes, and it generates what personality is. And the personality I got was called the Maverick. And I, I might have the test results around here somewhere. I, I, that might be fun to publish someday. Just put those out on the internet for people to see. Um, I really liked the test, but the Maverick, actually, Mike, if, if you read the personality description of the Maverick um, from the PI test, you could probably guess why I didn't fit well in a corporate environment because a lot of the Mavericks, what they're good at, and I think this is very true, is they just execute. They come up with an idea, they execute it, and then they they see how it goes, they execute, they just, they're constantly trying to push out into the boundaries of what's next, right? They're trying to constantly figure out what can I do to find out more? What can I do to bring in more? What can I do to build more? Um, and a lot of times it doesn't, that can, be, that can be difficult because it often doesn't necessarily have a plan associated with it. And, and that's true. I don't often operate with a very specific plan. Um, and that's probably going to be a downfall for me someday. But I, I definitely think that it has allowed me to develop the company very flexibly in the future. And I, we've, we've really been very flexible. I do think I wish I had more of a plan and I wish there was more of a plan. I probably should really sit down and make more of a plan, but it's really goes against my grain to, to do that. Um, and in my defense, I think the market is very fluid. It's very fluid and it's, there's constantly new development and new technologies. And I think when you develop a plan and particularly a plan, um, that is your safety blanket, you develop, uh, you become immune to, to, to new development. I think you start to, you start to look at it saying, Oh, well we should definitely implement that. And you don't implement it for years because it just doesn't get into the plan. Whereas when you don't necessarily have a plan and you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants, you know, you've got there, there whenever something new comes along, you'd be like, yep, we're going to just adopt that immediately. We're just going to start doing that. And if the website isn't working, rather than say, okay, well, let's make a plan to figure out how to change it. Say, all right, we're just changing the website. We're going to do it today. And it's going to be different tomorrow. And I think that's uh, kind of how we've run the company. And it, 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 it it's worked, I mean, I guess, for so far, but uh, maybe not so much, I guess, recently. And we'll get more into that. But um, so that's where I think I don't fit. I didn't fit very well into that environment. And I think that's really worked out well in my favor for, uh, the company because th- that maverick tendency has allowed me to, to really implement things without much. I don't really, it doesn't weigh on my conscience to just try new, something new. Um, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And you know, I hate that cause I like things to work, but I can also live with it. So 
you know, that's where that's at. But I think that looking, looking back that opportunity to take the leap, um, and, and that, and to, to be honest, having someone, you know, like Mike who helped me realize that, and I, and I, I think it was definitely, he, he was the person that helped me realize that it was okay to, to realize that I was unhappy and it was okay for me to, and I, and I had tried to solve it, right? I'd, I'd done, I'd spent a couple of months saying, okay, work the problem. Let's figure out why I'm unhappy here. Is there something we can do to figure that? He was very willing to say, Hey, how can we help make this better? And I, we tried a couple of things and it just, you know, with there was, there was limitations. There was, there was realistic limitations. And I, so, so, but what he did is he helped me realize that, you know, it's okay to acknowledge that it's not something isn't working and to acknowledge that, you know, the, the solutions we've tried haven't worked. Um, and you know, that it's okay to, 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 to leave a good job because it's not the right fit. And that was something that, you know, when you grow up with everybody having jobs and you grow up with everyone having jobs that they may or may not like, and they work hard at regardless, and you grow up with people, you know, we're, we're, you know, your main goal is to provide and to, to be responsible and to be organized and to go to school and get your degrees so that you can get a good job, right? Like when that's your mantra, it's all, it takes a lot in your head to say, I'm going to leave a good stable job because I'm unhappy in it. And I think that by going out on a limb, by risking everything and by charging into the unknown, I can be a happier. That's a lot. It's a big cognitive dissonance, even for an entrepreneur. And so um, you know, and Gary Vaynerchuk, listening to him, he helped me realize that there is, there was, there is opportunity in the internet, in the world now to be able to, to sell your products, to be able to do it, to, to be able to make it work. And, um, the trick is to just do it and to just execute over and over and over. And every day you just have to figure out what am I executing on today and just to do it. And th- that climb, that work is what pays off. And, you know, I will say that the last two months have been very stressful financially. We've, we were growing at such an unbelievable pace and we were self-capitalized, right? So we don't, it's not like we've got like money from investors that we can pull from to fuel our growth. We've just, it's all been self-funded. And the problem with self-funding a, there is advantages to self-funding. I'm the charge. I'm the boss. I don't have to ask anybody for anybody's permission. I just do things. The downside of self-funding is when you grow really fast, um, you limit your ability to, like you, there's, there's a limit to how fast you could grow before you run out of your money because it's just, it's no matter what your profit margin is, unless you have really, really ridiculous profit margins, which we don't. If you've got ridiculous profit margins, you can pull it off. But if you don't, like there's only so much extra money being generated by every sale. And if you're growing faster than that, you just, it doesn't keep up, right? You, you struggle with that. So, and then all of a sudden, as soon as those sales slow down for whatever reason, and the cash flow starts to dry up a little bit, all of those expenses, because you've been growing so fast, all of those overhead expenses and logistical expenses and inventory expenses, those start to catch up with you. And if you don't have the right money in place, it gets really problematic really fast. And if you make a $10,000 mistake or other mistakes, um, while that's happening, it can put your company into very serious jeopardy. And so, you know, that's kind of where we've been at. And I'll tell you more about those later, but 
so that's where it's like, you know, I'm up, I, I work from, well, I'm not a morning person, so I, I don't go to work probably until probably about nine. That's, that's, we have our staff meeting at 915. So nine is when I start, but I don't go to bed until 11 and I don't stop working until 11, right? Like I, I work all day and then I have dinner with Leah and Leah and I sit in the room and she, you know, we hang out and she watches television and I edit photos or I answer emails or I work on redesigning the website or I find more competitor analysis or I redesign our products. I mean, it's like, there's just, there's, there's 10,000 things that have to be done all the time. So I'm just working constantly, but that's kind of what you got to do to keep it going. And that's the, that's the trade-off because, you know, I took the leap and I basically traded a job. I was not happy, an eight, a nine to five job, eight to five job that I was not happy in for a, um, 12 hour a day job or a, or a 15 hour a day job that I love doing. And I, I really enjoy it and it's exhausting. It, it truly is exhausting. And I am feeling very old these days. Uh, I feel like the last three months have aged me 10 years, but, um, I, uh, I've learned a lot and I'm continuing to learn a lot. And I think that taking that leap was the best decision I ever made. And it, for those of you out there that are thinking about yourself, I would say, Figure out how to do it. Doing it's hard. Doing it's really hard. Like executing is really hard. But figuring out how to do it can make it easier, right? If you can say to yourself, look, I'm going to work at a country club in the evenings so that I don't have to take money out of my company to make it work, then do that, right? If you can figure out how to do it, doing it gets a lot less daunting. And that'd be my recommendation. All right, everyone, I'm, I'm rooting for going back to the regular podcasting. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you doing it every day. Like I used to, that's just not really viable anymore. Um, I probably can find 10 minutes most days though. So I'm going to try to keep doing it. I'm going to try to do it at least twice a week, probably Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, but I'm going to try to keep doing it every week, twice a week. I might do it more often if I've got, like I might do a bonus episode or an extra episode a week. If I can find a, um, find a good, a good topic. Like if there's something that comes up where I'm like, Ooh, I should talk about this. I'm definitely going to definitely do an extra one. But, uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to getting back into regular podcasting and I've got a lot to catch you guys up on. So please uh, make sure to tune in. Um, uh, be sure to check back in on Tuesday for our next topic. And don't forget to check that subscribe button below to be sure to get the latest podcast right away. If you have any questions or concerns about your leather binder or your journal or your folio, uh, please feel free to contact us on the main page of our website at murdycreative.co or you can contact us via our Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can check text, email, call, direct message, Snapchat, Twitter, in uh well don't facebook messenger us i don't check that very often but um we'll all the usual types of messaging messaging and uh i'll do my best to get back to you as soon as possible uh but i really appreciate your patience guys uh leah's basically doing all of our i'm fielding some of our messaging but leah's now doing a lot of our messaging because we just get so much every day um and so yes please thank you for your patience we appreciate it uh, if you think we deserve it, a good review can go a really long way to help us grow our new community and word of mouth is still the best form of advertising. So please tell your friends and you can also like review the podcast and then also go to Facebook and review the company. So you got to Murdy Creative Co. on Facebook and you can like leave a review. There's a review section. So both of those really help. And also, I hate to say it, that's like the thing that keeps me going. Like you guys, your reviews, like you guys leave glowing, amazing, happy reviews and I live, I live in an e-commerce world. Like I just, it's like an echo chamber here. I don't like ever interact with customers in the real world. So, you know, your digital reviews are the things where I'm like, oh, what a ray of sunshine on an otherwise gloomy day. So I appreciate that. That really, it makes an impact for me. And I promise you, I read all of the reviews. So you're not falling on deaf ears.
Uh, if you have any podcast topics you want to hear more about, send them my way. I'm always happy to engage with our growing community. And I want to give you guys what you want. If you're looking for multiple binders for gifts, giveaways, menus, really any reason, ask about our book discounts available. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day and goodbye.